Emika, you and John both have discrimination and skeptic, and so they both kind of double each other because they're just lined up. And as I mentioned with John, you've also got caution and intellectual center, and so it's you're really loading up on that. Plus, being an artisan, um, so I'm going to guess from just the, the way that your chart lines up, that, John, you're probably going to have the strongest innate skepticism in Emeka. You still have quite a strong one because of your discrimination uh, reinforcing that. The Big Hormone Enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovich, uh, sexual self-president with five-wing, four-five-eight trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-president, sexual, nine with one, nine-seven-four trifix. What up? It's Emika. I'm an eight-wing seven, sexual self-president with eight-five-four fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy. I am a self-president, social three-wing four with a six nine trifix if you like our podcast guys make sure you go like and subscribe on the apple podcast app and if you really like us you should definitely leave us a review welcome back everybody to the big hormone enneagram we're here again with shepherd talking about michael teachings last week we did a deep dive into channeling and the week before that we sort of did a basic intro of michael teachings and um sort of the essence characteristics of the chart today we're going to jump back into the overleaves and so some of you got your charts back last week and uh, you're still trying to figure out what it all means and so today we're going to jump back into the chart uh, and trying to explain uh, what some of these overleaves mean before we get into that um, someone had commented on the first podcast that we did when Shepard, when you were going through the axis characteristics for like inspiration, expression, you didn't get to do the action roles. So if you could start off today by talking about the action axis and talking about the warrior and king role. Also, we've had uh, quite a few people who've gotten charts who are king role and just uh, spending some time talking about that role would be good to start things off. Great. Yes. Yeah. So I was saying in the first podcast that the inspiration axis is about the inner world, the action axis is about the outer world, and the expression axis brings what is in the inner world into the outer world, so it's the bridge. And then the assimilation axis sits over to the side, and it's like the library or the storehouse of knowledge. So um, the two action axis rules are mainly concerned with the outer world. Uh, with, as with the first two axes, um, there's an ordinal one and a cardinal one. So the ordinal one is uh, more concrete, more down-to-earth, more specific, more just dealing with the details of life. And the cardinal member of the pair will be more big picture. So uh, warriors like to act in an ordinal way, and that means they love to work. They love to roll up their sleeves. They love challenges. Uh, these are the people who will tell you that they climb a mountain because it's there. Uh, they experience themselves by uh, exerting themselves against challenges and rising to the challenges. They are the most um, grounded, down-to-earth, earthy of the roles, the salt-of-the-earth types. 
um, the positive pull is persuasion, uh, which means that they are good at getting their comrades to get on the same page, to get something done, um, showing the necessity of making things more efficient, for example. Uh, you find a lot of warriors in the military, in law enforcement, but especially in the business world. The business world is a warrior playground, uh, for, especially for entrepreneurs. It's about winning. Warriors love to win. It's, warriors are often uh, adrenaline junkies. And warriors, perhaps more than any of the other roles, account for our uh, archetypes of masculinity in our culture. The reason for that is that in the U.S. particularly has a lot of warriors and artisans. But we, um, you know, the new world has just always been really appealing to warriors, the adventurers, the um, the challenge of the frontier, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the negative pull of warriors coercion, and that is where they force things on other people. Both warriors and kings and their negative pulls can be ruthless, very harsh. They, both roles just have one psychic input. We talked about the inputs before. They uh-huh. are one-at-a-time type of people. I mentioned that um, this, the single input roles... Uh, if they're thinking about you, that's all they're thinking about. And when they're not thinking about you, they're not thinking about you at all. And uh, understanding this can help us not have faulty expectations of them when we're in relationships with them. The partner to the warrior role is the king role. And kings tend to be a little more diplomatic than warriors because kings need to deal with the group, whereas warriors are just dealing with their own task, and they can be bulldozers, just plowing through whatever work. They tend to like quantity of work over quality of work, although it can be both. Uh, Kings organize large groups to act. They are also blunt people, but maybe not quite as much as the warrior, and they inspire loyalty. Loyalty is a huge word for warriors and kings that because their job is to act in the world, your loyalty to the action that you're doing together is extremely important to them. And if they perceive you as being disloyal, they can cut you off and hold a grudge forever. It's like, I couldn't count on you when I needed you, and it's over. Whereas um, sages and artisans tend to be a lot more fluid and so they can be a lot more easygoing and forgiving and, and, and just let go uh, of the past. But you can see why it would be important for warriors and kings to have the loyalty of those that they're working with on a task and, and uh, not to excuse an inability to let go of a grudge, but you can see where that comes from. So the kings are um, people that inspire uh, excitement. They're galvanizing. They make other people around them want to act. They're exciting. They have a very compressed kind of energy about them. It just feels like there's uh, so much energy packed into their skin, so to speak. And they do not necessarily inspire warm, cuddly feelings. They could if they have some softer secondary influences, but they will make your heart quicken a little bit, and if they're, especially if they're in their positive pull, which is mastery, you will feel that you want to please them. 
So the warrior could, in let's say in a military situation, could command her own squadron, for example. But the king, archetypically, would be uh, the one in charge of the whole endeavor. One of the things I've mentioned before on this podcast is that uh, Trump really stands out archetypally because regardless of what he says, there's something about his archetype role that is hitting on people's hindbrain that they're responding to him in such a way that this is the guy, this is the leader, this is the this is our king, and uh, he has a very clear king uh, role archetype. And I think a different sort of presidential leader wouldn't have this sort of response from their followers. It's it's something really strong and archetypal that people are willing to kill to keep him in power. Right. The negative pull of king is tyranny. You know, the kings don't seem to uh, understand if someone else doesn't think that they should be in charge. It's like it doesn't compute. (laughs) Quick question, because we had quite a few people that we know who've gotten their charts back and were uh, channeled as king girls. And most of them wouldn't be described as, you know, egomaniac control freaks. So uh, what can we, how can we understand the chart in terms of, you know, all the other factors that might inform how a king role would present itself in a normal person that's not an egomaniac dictator wannabe? Well, the positive pull mastery means that the king masters themselves. So this was um, self-discipline, trying to be excellent in the negative pole, kings want to dominate other people. So when you have a king more in the positive pole, that's a, a very charismatic. We could say something similar with all the roles that if the secondaries are radically different between two people with the same role, you will see a very different side of that energy. I have a friend who is a seventh level old king, and she uh, has artisan essence twin and, and artisan in stage casting, and she's a professional actress, and she's just the most delightful uh, person. Very expressive, funny, warm, uh, much more cuddly than the t- typical king, and that's because cuddliness comes more from the expression axis, and she has that in spades on her chart. And plus. She's such an old soul that she started to mellow. She doesn't have the um, the rough edges that uh, warriors and kings might have uh, in the earlier stages. Whereas if you have a king with a warrior essence twin and a lot of action axis overleaves, are going to be more stereotypical, going to have more of a coolness about them. So beyond like the basic definition of goal, attitude, and mode, I guess uh, I'd like to get your point of view in terms of how central and how important are these three overleaves? What sort of insights should we be pulling from the goal, attitude, and mode? Uh, the goal is the innermost of the overleaves. The, they are listed from innermost to outermost. And so the goal is your motivator, and it's 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 what ticks your clock, but it is not necessarily the most obvious one. It accounts for the kind of life that you create for yourself. So the most uh, common of the seven goals is the goal of growth. Uh, Planet-wide, we have about 40% of us with the goal of growth. And people in a goal of growth seek challenges that they can overcome. They are typically 
busy people who uh, want to keep learning new things. It's all about new things. So uh, if you have a goal of growth, then uh, if you have one free night a week, you're likely to schedule another class. You might want to learn a new language or a learn, learn a new cuisine or um, go to a new place. So in responding to new stimuli, we grow. This is not necessarily spiritual growth. But because the challenge is to meet uh, difficulties or, uh, or of course, like the difficulty of learning a new language, but meeting that and thereby growing, it tends to be a lifetime of challenges that can be overcome. The second most common of the goals is acceptance. That's mine. That's Nancy's here. Mm-hmm. And acceptance is about making peace with what is, and it creates a very different kind of life. In acceptance, you tend to have a lot of challenges that you cannot do a damn thing about, and your choice is to make peace with it or to not accept it and be miserable. Acceptance also creates a different personality type. So if you're in growth, you're really busy with your own stuff. Acceptance people, which again is 30% of us, are people who create social links in society. You'll notice that acceptance is right under the sage role. So they are both on the cardinal side of the expression axis, and therefore we would say that acceptance is the sage. And sages are the most social of the roles, and people with a goal of acceptance, even if they're not a sage, tend to be mediators. Uh, Our urge to find peace about things also means that we are good at helping people get along. We're the stereotypical nice guys. We tend to say yes more easily and have more trouble saying no, whereas the opposite goal, discrimination, tends to be more comfortable saying no and needs to get more comfortable saying yes. So we're always looking for balance. I was just wondering if certain goals line up with certain chief obstacles. I can say something about that right now. Your chief obstacle blocks your goal, but because you have a particular obstacle and a particular goal, there's no correlation that one means you have the other. You choose every trait on your chart as an individual thing. They're all a la carte. I'm really You're feeling so like right. I do not like my soul. Man, he picked <laughs> out some shit. <laughs> what, was your, what was your chief obstacle, Nancy? Stubbornness. And my uh, goal is acceptance. That's pretty, yeah, that sounds pretty rough. There are no good or bad things on the chart. So every particular combination will have its own challenges. And what this means is that your fear of change prevents you from accepting things as they are. Nancy's and, not accepting. Oh, you don't say. That's news to me there, Shepard. <laughs> well, and so if you can photograph that and you can say, oh, uh, a fear of change is coming up here. I'm willing to let this go. And I'm seeing how it's blocking my acceptance. And this is not making me happy. And maybe the stubbornness is pulling me into the negative pole of acceptance where you're being ingratiating, where you're trying too hard to get other people to like you, or you're, you know, you're being maybe a little sleazy to get what you want or whatever. So um, if you can just notice it in action, then you get the lessons. And it is possible to reduce or even erase your chief obstacle through a lot of hard inner work. So yes, you're, you're, Chief obstacle tends to block your goal, and your secondary tends to block your attitude. 
And I, although I don't put these on the chart, if you had a tertiary, that could block the moat. So it goes from the innermost to the outermost. They're, they're layered there, which is something most um, Michael students don't really pay much attention to, but it, I find it interesting. And also, uh, the secondary may be showing up more in your interpersonal relationships, whereas the, the chief obstacle may be showing up more in your um, general life. The goal of flow is an interesting contrast to growth and acceptance because it creates a different kind of life still. If you have a goal of flow, your life works best when you let go. And what's really interesting is to see someone in stubbornness, which blocks flow, and flow. So they're, you know, the, the two things do opposite things on the chart, and it's a real incentive to photograph your stubbornness because it'll make you very unhappy. But um, if you have growth, then you find that by working super hard, you overcome things and it makes your life better. But if you have flow, more often you find that if you just let the universe help you out and just relax, things will go better in your life. So people with the goal of flow are the ones who are always saying things like, well, I was down to my last dollar and then I found a $20 bill on the, on the ground or um, I got this unexpected check in the mail or whatever. That happens a lot uh, with the goal of flow. Discrimination is something that's coming up with a lot of you, although it's the second least common yeah. of the goal. I wanted to hit on that because, you know, based on what you said, uh, growth and acceptance are really common, and we didn't really get much growth in uh, the charts that we've gotten back. We've got quite a bit of acceptance and then a bunch of discrimination and dominance. Like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if um, people who are discriminating uh, would uh, be more interested in the Enneagram. Well, it's not just people that are interested in the Enneagram. I think it said something specifically about our group because of yeah. um, the way that we're doing Enneagram. We're pretty, well, one, the approach that we're applying to the Enneagram is highly specific and nuanced. And so there are a lot of very specific individualistic personalities, uh, people that are searching for nuance and not necessarily agreement, but you know, um, very specific viewpoints and perspectives. There's a lot of uh, not necessarily agreeable personalities around. I had a, an uncle who was a sage in discrimination, and those are, are abrading overleaves, meaning that they work in opposite directions, and it takes a lot of work to harmonize them. And um, sages just naturally want their audience to love them, because if, if they don't, then sages can't do our job. Uh, and yet discrimination uh, is about saying no, and it was originally called rejection. Mm -hmm. So um, it's these two forces, and so it, when if you have a sage who's always driving everyone away from them because they're in the negative pole of discrimination, you've got a very unhappy, even tortured uh, sage. But a sage who can learn to be discriminating in the positive pole can really refine his sagely expression. And every group that comes together has quite um, specific characteristics, even if it's not immediately uh, apparent. And so uh, you may just be happening, happening to run around with a lot of discriminators. Can you say a little bit more about the goal of discrimination, uh, the positive, because me, John, and Joseph, who's not here, have that goal? Yes. So in acceptance, 
your focus is on saying yes. So it's being easygoing, and if somebody else asks you to do something, uh, you will pretty much tend to go along with it. Um, if you do that too much and you don't have a good no, you start to lose yourself. You start to lose what you really want, what you really feel, what really works for you uh, in terms of the things you have time for and that sort of thing. So to have a good, clean, happy yes, you need a good, clean no. And you get the clean no from doing the positive pull of discrimination. With any of the overleaves, you can slide to the opposite one to get you out of your negative pull. So if I'm uh, saying yes in ways that are not positive for me, uh, which I've certainly done a great deal in my life, um, then sliding to the positive pole of discrimination, which is sophistication, will help me get out of that. So I learned to discern uh, what my no's rightly are. Um, not arbitrary, not knee-jerk, having thought them through, having processed, having uh, really discerned what works for me, what's appropriate for me, and what isn't. And so then I can have um, a sense of, you know, why this is not something that I need or want to be doing, and I don't need to be critical or negative toward the people who are asking me to do these things, but I can simply uh, say to them without prejudice, which is the negative pull, that, um, you know, I, I just can't do that. It's just not going to work for me. So that keeps me in a clean yes, and when you have a goal of discrimination, then you have the same lessons in reverse. So um, you're learning no, and your focus is no, and the purpose of that, uh, because again, everyone needs a good, clean no, um, the purpose of that is to develop the ability to sift through what life offers and decide what works for you and what doesn't, what you like, what you don't like. It's about, it's a lifetime of separating the wheat from the chaff. So uh, it's also an intellectual um, overleaf because you'll notice if you look down the chart that the intellectual center is right underneath it. Mm -hmm. So it's about sifting intellectually to uh, really take a good look at things. And clearly, uh, you guys are doing that a lot with the Enneagram, where you're sifting through, okay, this is not really that sound. Now, John, you also have a skeptic attitude, which is also intellectual, and that's going to aid in that. And all of those are artisan position qualities, so they all reinforce each other. They make each other stronger and more pronounced. Mm. Um, that is useful, but it can also... Uh, make you out of balance in that way because they do strengthen each other. And when they're in their negative poles, they can be unpleasant. So Never unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> no, fours are so easy to get along with and so happy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was really interesting that, uh, well, a lot of the people that have quote-unquote negative types in the Enneagram, like, ended up getting and highly specific also ended up getting go of, you know discrimination or the attitude of skepticism which are negative overleaves to have so that was really cool to see that validating um across the two systems like there is some yeah. overlap between the way they show up yes and 
they're negative in the sense that they they do go for no or skepticism or um, testing things. Uh, so if you use the word negative to mean just something like that, it's fine. But if you're using the word negative, meaning like this is necessarily unpleasant or um, dis a distortion, like as opposed to a more positive attitude, then nothing on the chart is in and of itself negative. Uh -huh. uh, it's all about how you use it. So there are people who have some of the more difficult overleaves, and I think the cynic attitude is probably the most uh, inherently challenging overleaf that a person might have. Uh -huh. But there are people who do it so lovingly and so subtly that you wouldn't even guess it from knowing them. And then there are people who do it uh, very uh, stereotypically and in a, a quite a negative way. So it so much depends on the individual, and a lot of that is just the choices that they've made, how much work they've done on themselves. But it's also looking for whether that trait is reinforced somewhere else on the chart or if it's sort of standing on its own. So someone who's a warrior who's a cynic, that is going to be stronger than someone who's a server and a cynic, because servers are, you know, relatively laid back. Dominance. I want to you dominate know, the problem. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the challenges of the Michael teachings is that people will think, well, I cannot possibly be this because I have this personality trait. But if you can learn to interpret the chart as a whole, uh, you can see that personality trait showing up somewhere else. So someone might um, think they have a goal of dominance, and it turns out that actually they're a warrior or a king. And of course, kings are, are natural leaders, but not all kings have the goal of dominance. Whereas then if you also have uh, a role that is not as often in a leadership position, then having the goal of dominance, which is the king goal, will give that soul a chance to have a lifetime that somewhat stimulates that, that gives them some of those kinds of experiences. But it's not as intense as being the king role. The positive pole of dominance is leadership, and uh, the negative pole is uh, dictatorship. And so um, people in dominance can tend to be bossy, but... Some don't really do it in the negative pool all that much. Some don't even like leading all that much, but they still find themselves asked by the people they work with to take on a leadership role, and it may come as a kind of a surprise to them, like, why do you want me to be in that position? Um, so, um, you know, scholars would rather stand off to the side and just observe and take notes. And so uh, being in a leadership position is not the most common thing for a scholar to want to do. Um, now, uh, David, you do have, as a scholar, double warrior casting, and warrior casting is cardinal, whereas the warrior role is ordinal. And so that cardinal warrior casting also makes you a bit more of, uh, could be a leader, it could be an organizer, it could be a rabble-rouser, an iconoclast. So the dominance could uh, fit in with that also. Before we go on, I wanted to say something about submission and dominance and how okay. easy it is for the pairs to slide to each other. And if you 
um, look at um, sexual subcultures that are into dominance and submission, you're going to likely find a lot of people who have one of these two goals. That's interesting. One thing I was going to ask quickly, because on the chart for some of these overleaves, you see it, it denotes saying like it's sliding. Can you say a little bit about what that means if someone, it says that, uh, I think for me, I have the goal of discrimination, but it says that I slide to acceptance. What does that mean? Whatever your overleaves are, you can slide. So if you're in growth, you probably occasionally slide to reevaluation just to get a break from all the stimulation. And anyone in discrimination will occasionally slide to acceptance um, to, to find their yes. But if it shows up on your chart as sliding to acceptance, at the, the, the time that your chart was channeled, Michael saw that you were doing that a fair amount, uh, that there's maybe a, a longer-term tendency to use that particular sliding mechanism. And some people are just sliders. You know, you'll see sliding to this, slide to that all over their chart. And some people, it, you know, the majority of people, it doesn't show up at all. Oh, we didn't talk about submission. We have a couple people with submission. Yeah, so um, people in submission want to devote themselves to something larger than, than themselves, and it's task-oriented. In, in the archetype, you would be devoted to a leader, so it would more manifest as that submission dominance thing. But especially in the later soul ages, it is more likely to manifest as uh, someone who's devoted to a cause. So it's hmm. some kind of action because it's on the action axis. You know, it could be the fight for uh, women's rights. It could be um, working for a favorite charity or something like that. But this feeling of devoting yourself feels really good when you have the goal of submission. It could also be devotion to your life partner. It could be devotion to your children. The negative pull subservience means that you're not owning your choice to do those things. It actually can resemble the negative pull of server, even though they're not on the same axes. Mm-hmm. Um, is the negative pull of server is bondage, which is where you feel like you're stuck in this role that you didn't choose, uh, that you're being taken advantage of and nobody appreciates you. And submission, it's that same feeling of uh, lack of agency. So, in fact, a lot of the ordinal traits in their negative poles uh, are fueled by a a sense of um, lack of your own personal power. Hmm. Certainly the the ordinal chief obstacles, self-deprecation, self-destruction, and martyrdom, they're all based on this uh, sort of collapsed self-view. All right. Attitude. So the attitude is the next layer, and it's how we look at the world. And these are uh, named after a lot of the ancient schools of philosophy, like, for example, in ancient Greece, uh, although Michael, as always, has redefined them. The spiritualist looks at the world uh, through a lens that is inspirational in a cardinal or big way and says, wow, anything is possible. And so the spiritualist may be attracted to spiritual studies for that reason, because uh, it's a more inspirational view of the possibilities of the human condition. Um, The positive pull is verification, and the negative pull is faith, as in blind faith. So uh, the reason verification is the positive pull is that 
spiritualists can too easily be starry-eyed and naive and uh, not check things out. So to be in the positive pole, you have to find out whether this possibility that you are seeing uh, uh, is really possible. Does it really hold water or is it just unicorns? So I think a part of, of the advantage of a spiritualist attitude is that you find it easy to believe in other people. And sometimes your belief in other people is contagious. It's like if you're working with a young person who's going through a lot of problems and you, maybe as a spiritualist, see their potential and say, look, you can do this. You could, yeah, I know it looks like it's a long way away, but I could see you going to medical school and graduating and just having a great life, or I could see you healing from this trauma. So it's quite beautiful and necessary, but it does need to be grounded. A lot of you are skeptics, so skeptic is, again, intellectual. It's on the expression axis. And skeptics look at the world um, through a lens that says, hmm, I don't know, maybe... Let's look into it. It is uh, the most useful attitude for scientists and journalists to have because they start with an open mind, but they're not going to take it on faith. They're going to investigate it. That's the positive pull. They check their facts. And if they are convinced of something, if they do validate it, they can become its biggest champion, but not until. The negative pull is where you're stuck in suspicion, where no amount of evidence convinces you that something is what it seems to be or presents to be. And it's, again, fear-based. The negative polls are all fear-based. Any comments from our skeptics here? I don't buy it, man. I don't, um, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. I mean, <laughs> I mean I, I've said before, I'm pretty skeptical of this system. Uh, but I mean, like, I appreciate you, Shepard, and I appreciate that Emika and Joseph appreciate the system. And so I'm, I'm coming out with an open mind, but I'm, I'm definitely inhabiting that, uh, what is it? The attitude. I'm yeah, definitely yeah. inhabiting the skeptic I'm, attitude. And I'm, I'm a, sp- I'm a spiritualist, so I just believe it on day one. <laughs> so yes, uh, Emika, you and John both have discrimination and skeptic. And so they both kind of double each other because they're just lined up. And as I mentioned with John, you've also got caution and intellectual center. And so it's you're really loading up on that, plus being an artisan. Um, so I'm going to guess from just the, the way that your chart lines up that, John, you're probably going to have the strongest innate skepticism. And Emika, you still have quite a strong one because of your discrimination uh, reinforcing that. And then, Emma, you're in passion mode, and and that just adds fuel to everything, whatever else is on the chart. So that's an intensifier. So, yeah, you both have that quite strong. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, in terms of Enneagram stuff, like, you know, uh, instinct especially, like, I guess my, what is it? Arrogance is my whatever. uh, Your chief obstacle. My chief obstacle. So, like, I'm, I'm like, I always tell everybody, like, all of the Enneagram material is wrong. And uh, I've reevaluated it, and I know it's right. And and everybody's like, <laughs> "You are how could you be so arrogant?" <laughs> like, I don't know, but that's what I think, you know. <laughs> and you just you say, "Well, I've had practice." Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Even, I, I try not to even like talk about my background. Like, I'm just like investigate the ideas or don't, you know. But don't bother me, you know. Like, <laughs> like take it or leave it. But if you can, if you can argue against me based on the ideas, like in the internal logic, whatever. But that's my whole added, my whole sense of it is like, 
every like I don't think most people get anything right. And I'm not saying I get it right, but I just like you gotta fucking open it up in a different way, you know. Mm. I think uh, you guys is <clears throat> Emika and John. Uh, you guys goal and attitude are pretty aligned with four and five fixes. Basically, yeah. the most obnoxious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the most uh, most charming of. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll call it that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See how arrogant he is. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, really, for real, I just deflect in anything <laughs> negative immediately. Like, anything critical against me, I'm like, yeah, it's just because you're getting it wrong. <laughs> and somehow, all the women in the room just go, oh. <laughs> 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 including myself. It's also this thing where you can't agree with someone because from from the perspective of discrimination and skeptic, you can always get more specific. And so when someone says something, it's hard to agree with whatever it is they're saying because it's not, it's never going to be a specific or in whatever avenue of specificity that you're looking at it. So it's like, whenever someone yeah. says something, it's going to be yeah. like, well, actually this is where I'm coming from. So there's a way that you're never going to be on the same page with someone who's got, you know, the goal of discrimination. And that's sort of like mm-hmm. what four and five are all about in the Enneagram is just sort of self-contained specificity that being on the different page. Yeah, always yeah. on a different page. Yeah, I know. that. I get that way, too, with my four-wing. I'm like, you will never understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's useless. One of the core um, understandings of the, the Michael teachings is that our chief obstacle can, like a domino effect, put us into our uh, negative poles of our other traits. And so if you... Uh, can get, in, in John, in your case, the arrogance obstacle out of the way where you can photograph that the underlying fear is a fear of being judged by others, and so you sort of want to present yourself in a way that, that spares you from that. If you can get that out of the way, and then you can be in the positive pole of discrimination, skeptic, uh, caution, intellectual center, etc., you've got uh, a really fine tool there for uh, discernment and sorting things out. And I don't think that tool would include starting out from dismissing things. I think it would start out from, uh, okay, I'm, I'm sensing some things here that could use some uh, more clarity. Let's, let's jump into it and, and start sorting through uh, these sure. things. That's like what I, the attitude I'm sort of taking with this. But, but I'd say, yeah, some of the thing about the, the arrogance thing of not wanting to be judged, I don't necessarily experience myself as having a fear of being judged, but like part of what I do experience, and, and I don't know if I'm blending categories with discrimination and arrogance, but, um, you know, I, I remember being very young and watching uh, people go insane after 9-11 and start to become basically like fascist, you know, like, I went to a Catholic school and everybody like I hardly knew what a Muslim was, you know, when 9-11 happened. And then everybody, all these like, you know, supposed like Christian, Catholic, whatever, were like talking about bombing Muslim countries, you know. And I was like, this is like just so fucked up. And so I have this thing of seeing like mass hysteria and like I do not want to be swept up in any kind of fucked up collective delusion you know like like the sort of the delusions of the day i don't want that's that's like that's where at least i attribute a lot of whatever i'm thinking these categories are you know what i'm saying yeah gosh i think that's a a good idea for everyone to um 
not get swept up with things, and that's really a big point of the whole uh, spiritual and self-awareness path is to become more conscious and not get swept up into things just because other people are being swept up into them. Um, Another definition of arrogance is a fear of vulnerability, and it's just in general a self-protection. And so you don't need to be overly self-protective in order to not get swept up into mass hysteria. You could simply examine things with a clear head and an open mind and uh, do what you're doing, which is asking good questions and and living with it. Uh, So the fear part doesn't need to be tied into the rest of it in order for you to get good results. One of the things I told John was the uh, combination of goal of discrimination with the chief obstacle of arrogance pretty much describes what um, a type four is in the Enneagram, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, you know, because there's a lot of image, image center, you know, looking at oneself and uh, image center orientation and self-consciousness and not wanting to be seen a certain way with type four, but it's very self-specific and it's, there's a lot of no and rejection of anything that doesn't um, reflect specifically uh, to the four. And so that those two overleaves, seeing that, that all the fours kind of got, like Joseph and John got goal discrimination and cheap obstacle of arrogance was a, a nice way to validate the system. Well, the, the attitude of I'm right and you're wrong, I know and you don't, and you're idiots and I'm smart, um, that could definitely be fueled by uh, the arrogance obstacle. And without that, you might, in fact, be the smartest guy in the room and the most discerning and the most grounded and and all of that. But you can work with other people with enough humility that you don't put them off, that you just maybe help them to see more clearly. And I think that's more positive for you and it's more positive for other people, whereas if you just you know come off as a, a an arrogant asshole, then you know people aren't going to be really receptive to questioning things that maybe they ought to be questioning. All right, what's left? The uh... Uh, idealist. I'm an idealist. The idealist looks at the world in terms of an ideal, like you know what it should be or um, how it, how things could be improved. That's maybe one of the hallmarks of the idealist is that I cannot look at anything in life and not improve it in my head. Um, you know, like this wall could use a coat of paint, or I can't uh, watch a play without rewriting it, or read something without editing it and correcting the grammar. It's just always like it could always be better according to whatever my personal ideals are, which would not necessarily be the same uh, for somebody else. Um, so idealists are... Uh, the attitude that is most likely to change the world because idealists believe that we can change the world. And even though we're often disappointed, especially when our ideals are not grounded enough in reality, um, there's kind of a sage position, bounciness and optimism where uh, we we have a resilience when there's a setback, we get right back up on the horse and, and go right back to trying to make the world a better place. So it's a little bit like uh, Don Quixote uh, tilting at windmills in the negative pole. 
but um, these are people who change the world. Barack Obama is a classic idealist. You know, his mm. theme, uh, yes, we can, and he's also a priest, so there's the inspirational aspect of it. Um, he was also maybe in the negative pole of idealist uh, relative uh-huh. to the Republicans, which is abstraction. He had this inspirational idea that he could win them over and work with them and reestablish bipartisanship. And he was very slow to recognize that that wasn't ever going to happen. Um, that was his abstraction keeping him from seeing reality, whereas if he had slid to the positive pole of skeptic and really looked at what was in front of him, um, he might have not stayed in that negative pole for so long. All right, so mode. So the mode's how you run your energy. It's, it's the way you tend to live your life. The two On the inspiration axis, of course, have an inspirational quality, so they're about the inner world. Um, reserve mode contracts the inner world, so you run your energy by contracting it internally, and in the positive pole, uh, reserve um, operates with restraint, grace, elegance, and the archetype of that is the ballet dancer, where they control every muscle in their body to create a beautiful and gracious effect. The negative pole is inhibition, and inhibition is just suppression. Rather than controlling to make something beautiful, it's just putting a damper on everything. And this is something that those in reserve mode can really struggle with, that um, they just feel so inhibited like they just can't be themselves. Uh, passion mode is the opposite. It's, it's instead of trying to control every muscle to be this graceful thing, you're like a huge puppy dog who just jumps right in and says, uh, you know, let's have some fun here. Pour our, we're going to pour our whole selves into what we do without any control. It's the inner self being poured in in a cardinal, expansive way. Uh, in the uh, negative pole, um, identification, you lose yourself. You just, you, you just don't have enough boundaries to have a sense of self. The analogy I use for this is if you come upon someone drowning in quicksand in the negative pole, you jump in the quicksand with them. So it's, not, it's not helping anything. If you do the positive pole self-actualization, uh, you, you pour yourself into helping this person, but you think it through, and you find a rope and you tie it around a tree and you throw them the other side of the rope. So then you, you've self-actualized. So um, what we find with passion mode is people who lose themselves in relationships, and uh, they're the people who then complain that, um, you know, I wasn't me anymore, which is something that I can't even um, fathom uh, because I'm in observation mode. It's just not something I would do. I don't even understand what that would look like or feel like to have lost myself in a relationship. But in passion mode, um, that can happen. Yeah, me and David have this are in passion mode. Yeah, one thing I'm curious about that, because I've got warrior kind of like triple emphasized. I, I think I've noticed throughout my life I mean, one way to frame it is through this lens of passion versus warrior. Like, uh, I, I kind of am constantly watching for that possibility of losing myself, like a warrior mm-hmm. that, you know, is kind of insistent on sort of fighting against that and not and, and staying with whatever my mission is. 
And it's because there's a reflex to lose myself. And you could lose yourself in the mission, you know, in the, in that warrior right. enterprise that you, that thing that you wanted to accomplish mm. and passion mode and the spiritualist uh, and passion being similar, reinforce each other. Right. And so you have this vision, this warrior vision of how I'm going to, going to do this thing. And, uh, everything needs to be balanced. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the, your ability to hold this big vision with passion and, and this enterprising quality could be very positive. But yeah, you don't want to lose yourself. No. So caution and power mode are the expression axis modes. And um, again, so that going to have an intellectual quality. Uh, in caution mode, uh, you run your energy in a deliberate way in the positive pole. You you're trying to make careful intellectual choices about what you do. Uh, and sometimes this could be chosen if you have tended to be too impulsive in past lives. This is a way of putting on the brakes. Uh, the negative pole is phobia, and people in caution mode can just have debilitating fear, uh, rather like uh, reserve mode and the inhibition of that. This is the second most of the ordinal um, modes. So um, the positive pole deliberation making good, wise, careful choices is near and dear to the Michael teachings because um, learning to make good choices is a big part of our growth here. And the book I recently published is called All is Choices on this very subject. So the opposite of uh, caution mode is power mode. And um, in power mode, uh, you express, your energy moves out in an expressive, big, expanded way. The positive pull of power mode is authority. It means like, because you're amplifying the power, power and passion and aggression, they're all cardinal modes, and so they amplify. And so you amplify your expression in power mode, and because you're coming on strong, you leave the impression that you feel like you know what you're talking about, and so other people are likely to think you know what you're talking about as well. So power mode can be chosen. Like let's say a server in power mode would help would help the server to get people to listen to them. Um, the negative pole is oppression. One of the things we find with people in power mode is that they cannot hide a bad mood because everything just exudes out of them in an amplified way. So if you're in a bad mood uh, and you try to cover it up, everyone will see right through it. So Nancy and John are both in caution mode, but John slides to the power mode. That's interesting. Any comments? Any of you? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see myself in the, in the way that I read caution mode from the thing that came with the Michael chart, uh, the, the guidebook or whatever. But I relate to like the deliberateness. Like, yeah, like there's a, there's a deliberateness and also like a hiddenness that I think is pretty prevalent. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. I think uh, like living in caution mode, not sliding to power would be kind of a combination of that three to six because threes are very deliberate with what we express. Mm-hmm. You ain't going to know anything if we don't want you to know. <laughs> well, like, I mean, intellectually, at least like you could say I have a caution mode from the point of view that like I really like reevaluate and reevaluate, reevaluate things that I, you know, stake my understanding in. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it's Enneagram Egypt or something else. But yeah, so that, I mean, there's that point of view where like earlier, what I said about the mass hysteria and not wanting to be subject to the, the, the conclusions that ideology 
brings. Like I want to be conscious of what the ideology is, like from a you know, like the unconsciousness of ideology and how it operates. So that that's maybe caution mode. Absolutely, yeah. There's, again, it's an intellectual trait. Everything on the ordinal side of the expression axis has an intellectual quality about it. So yeah, it's just saying, well, wait a minute here. Let's think about this. Look before you leap. Mm-hmm. I have a question in in terms of uh, these overleaves in terms of go attitude and mode how might some of this how might you experience friction in a relationship well if you're in discrimination in a relationship with someone in acceptance it's very important acceptance being the sage position goal uh, to feel accepted and if you're in the negative pull of discrimination where you're just picking at them all the time that's just not going to work for the person in acceptance on the other hand, the person in discrimination might really like how accepting the partner is. It may be something you don't even really even understand, but it certainly is comforting as sort of a nice break. Whereas if you're both in discrimination, you might just be picking at each other all the time in the negative goal. And some of the overleaves just get on with just about everyone. Like the goal of flow gets on really well with all the others. Um, if you're in a relationship with someone with a goal of growth and they're busy all the time and you want them to be more interested in you, that might not work for you. Just, of course, it depends on the individuals. Let's see, looking at the attitudes, cynic and skeptic being the more sort of classically negative of the attitudes that could cause problems in relationships. I think more so the cynic because uh, the, the negative pull of cynic is uh, denigration that can just be very, very harsh. But again, it's a matter of whether the person's mainly doing their positive or their negative polls, and what else is on the chart, and what choices that that person is making insofar as how they use those energies. Idealists and spiritualists would make the most uh, inspiring partners, and that they tend to be more positive and upbeat. But really, anything works in the positive pole. And in the negative pole, there can be problems. So a- any two people can work together, but certain combinations do bring up certain challenges. I feel like relationships are just, are you able to put up with their shit long, long enough? <laughs> and are they able to put up with your shit long enough? Relationship is just, who do I want to cause me pain and what kind of pain? Exactly. What kind of pain <laughs> can I handle for the rest of my life? <laughs> Some people sent me some questions for Shepard. One of them was that if someone has a low frequency role, like a one input role, like warrior, but they have a essence frequency that's higher than average, how would that affect the way the role is expressed? Yeah, a high frequency warrior is a rather a rare bird. You don't see them very often. And they still feel like the warrior. There's still that earthy feeling about them on the... The, the band of frequency that is the role, you know, that's that's unmistakable. But there's also something about them as an individual that is has an airier quality than the typical warrior. And you could certainly confuse that with other things. You might wonder if they have some priest or artisan, which are the true two high-frequency roles, blending in with that. Of course, that's possible, but not necessarily. And um, you will be most comfortable living with other people whose frequency is closer to yours. So if, you ha- if you're any role and you have a high frequency, 
uh, let's say, 80. That's unusual. And you're living with someone whose frequency is 40. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it could be a, just a little uncomfortable, something that would be just pulling at you a little bit. So you're saying that people people feel comfortable with people that have similar levels of uh, frequency. Right. So frequency is an item on, on the, the Michael chart between uh, 1 and 100. And most people are in the middle range, like 40 to 60. And if you're in that middle range, you're probably going to be comfortable with the majority of people. But mm-hmm. if you are one of those rare people with a frequency of 80 or 90 or even 100, I've run into that, um, there are not going to be a lot of people within 20 points of your frequency. And so you're probably going to end up living with people whose frequency is quite a bit different from yours. And you have this airy, very even gas-like quality about you, and they have this, they're just moving more slowly through their life, and you're going to feel that difference. It won't necessarily bother you all that much, but you you can uh, notice it. So, yes, uh, within about 20 points is the maximum comfort zone for frequency. And another question that came in, uh, because we've been talking about different ways that we're attracted to people, and one of them was um, how we're attracted to people that are in our same cadre or entity, because there's quite a few people who are in the same cadre of the fourth cadre in our group. Um, And so what does that mean uh, in terms of the kind of resonance or attraction that one might feel with someone who's a member of the same cadre or entity? So your entity is your spiritual family, and it's uh, roughly about a thousand souls, and you probably know people who are in your entity. And even if you're on the surface quite a bit different from each other, there's something that feels uh, the same. It's like your siblings in your family, like your brothers and sisters, that, you know, siblings can be very different, but they share something in common. Uh, And people do um, have romantic relationships with people who are in their entity, but they especially tend to be attracted to people in neighboring entities of their cadre, which is simply seven entities mm-hmm. uh, or 7,000 souls. Uh, if you're in the uh, second entity of your cadre, uh, you will find a lot of mates in the first and third entities of your cadre, um, and then in decreasing numbers. Um, in the other entities of your cadre. But um, there are a lot of couples who are not in the same cadre, but they are in different cadres of the same cadre group, which is simply 12 cadres. The soul craves variety. And so looking outside what is most familiar to you based on what you've already done in past lives is something that more adventurous souls are going to do a lot. So you don't have to be in the same uh, cadre. You're probably, in most cases, going to be in the same cadre group as the most important people in your life. But even then, that is not necessarily the case. So, for example, Nancy, you are in uh, a cadre group that um, I don't run into as much. Uh, You're in cadre one, uh, and people in your cadre group tend to more often incarnate in Asia than in the United States. Could that, like, I don't really know how this part of the chart works. Could that, like, cause a draw towards Asia? 
because I don't yeah. want to live in America. Well, a lot of your entity mates are uh, living in the Orient, so you've probably had a lot of your lifetimes there. I had a question on uh, previous cycles category. Yes. Mine is 13, and I think I noticed everybody was at like 10, so I'm just wondering if I'm superior to everybody. Uh, hold you up. Are, I'm yes. at 14, so kindly yes, shut up. Oh, oh okay. Well, I, bow, I bow to Nancy again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Down on your knees. So, the, the number of previous Grand Cycles tells you how many other planets that you've played this game on before. And the game mm. is where you um, choose a planet and a life form to do a series of lifetimes on the physical plane, then ascend through all the higher planes of that planet until you're back in the Tao. And every time you do that game, you gain experience at that, this particular game. It's not the only game that the universe offers to uh, for evolution, but it's the one we're playing. The higher the number, the more complexity you probably have. And on Earth, uh, we have a, an unusually wide range of the number of previous grand cycles. So we have some people with zero previous cycles. This is their first planet, although I've, I've not run into them personally. And we have people with as high as 19. And I've channeled five charts out of about 12,000 with 19 previous cycles. Jesus was one of them, but they're not necessarily spiritually exalted people. They're just really complex people because they just have more layers. It's sort of like this year's computer being having a little bit more capability uh, of ultimate potential than last year's, but you probably won't notice it because last year's or the one from five years ago still does most of the things that you want it to do. Yeah, I don't notice it in Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't find yeah, that funny. <laughs> so previous cycles is how many planets you've done this with, and then with the soul age, that's talking about this current planet, right? Like how right. Many... Yeah. So okay, we each have three different kinds of age. We have the age of our body, which could be young, middle-aged, or old. We have the age of our soul, which can be the same, and we have the, our age as the spark of the Tao, as an eternal being who is beyond this particular planet. And that has a, a particular age. Uh, but it's all relative. So Earth is a little bit um, out in the boondocks, and so <laughs> we tend to have less experienced, and, and we're sort of like the, the Wild West or the frontier, you know, where less experienced souls like to go to have a crazy adventure. And if you go closer to the center of the galaxy, where uh, the average number of previous cycles may be much, much higher than it is on Earth, uh, you have just far more complexity, and you have more of that science fiction kind of group mind meld sort of thing, and, and the extremely advanced technology, but maybe uh, at a loss to the more uh, raw emotions and physicality uh, that we have here. So. Older is not wiser, better, more experienced is not better. Uh, the universe really prizes it all from the least to the most. So what distinction could one, because all the charts we've gotten back were everyone's either uh, mature soul age or old soul age. And I'm trying to make some kind of distinction between the two soul ages 
if any, what might one be able to conclude from seeing, oh, I'm I'm the mature soul age on here, or I'm an old soul age? There are five main soul ages on the physical plane. Uh, what we call the infant soul age uh, is where we're getting used to the planet like uh, uh, a newborn baby just focusing on surviving. And then there's the second soul age, which is structure-oriented, and uh, that we call that the baby soul age. Uh, and this is where we're learning how to work in societal structures. Uh, when you find fundamentalists of any religion, you are looking at a baby soul kind of consciousness because they're learning how to work together in these groups and they're not sophisticated enough yet to, um, to do so in a, a very uh, nuanced way. And then we have the young soul age, which is saying, okay, uh, I've really gotten used to planet Earth. I know how to handle things, and I'm going to take external achievement to its, its high point. Uh, so the young soul is the uh, the most successful in the outer world, typically. It's achievement orientation. And so then there's been this movement from infant to baby to young of becoming increasingly uh, masterful of the outer world. And then suddenly there's the biggest change that's ever going to happen on the physical plane, which is um, where we start to, instead of focusing on the outer world, we start focusing on the inner world. And this begins with the mature soul cycle. So now we're going within and we're um, focusing on our emotions, our relationships, our inner world, how we relate to each other, relationships become the primary focus. And by relationship here, it's more one-on-one. -on -one. It's sort of, there's me and you, and let's just focus on me and you. And then um, once that is handled, then the soul is interested in how does it all fit together? Let's put it all together. And that's the old soul cycle, which focuses on context. So there's you and me, yes, and that's very important, but there's also you, me, and our context, our environment. And so it becomes more three-dimensional rather than two-dimensional. And so um, the old souls are characterized as being more philosophical. Uh, the old soul age is the fifth or sage soul age. So five is sage, and the fifth soul age has a sage quality, which is about being philosophical and um, insightful and putting it all together, as I said. Whereas the mature soul age is the fourth soul age, and four is scholar and it's about assimilating. So at the mature soul cycle, you're going deep into self and you're figuring things out. You're figuring out how do I relate to these other people? How do I relate to myself? So there's a lot of digesting or assimilating that goes on during the mature cycle and a lot of philosophizing that goes on during the old soul cycle. Old souls are not necessarily more spiritually advanced than mature, young, or baby, or infant souls, because that's a matter of the individual's choice. So if you've done the work, you will advance. If you haven't done the work, you won't advance. But if someone is an old soul and they're doing the work, they have another layer to show for it, as opposed to a mature soul who's also done the work. So you can sense uh, a greater refinement in the vibration in old souls who, who have done the work. But uh, even someone at seventh level old could be a total asshole uh, if they're stuck in ego, if they're 
um, they haven't examined their chief obstacles and their negative poles and so forth. And people could be young souls and be um, really quite good at unconditional love and self-awareness and so forth. But you will find that the young soul has a different focus than the old soul. That's really what the soul age tells us is the focus. All right. Yeah, these are three pretty in-depth calls. I mean, of course, it's just the tip of the iceberg, but I think that's enough to get people who got their charts started thinking of maybe uh, doing some kind of an offshoot because there's no real Michael Teachings podcast in existence anywhere. I think it'd be worth doing some kind of regular pod about it. So That's a great idea. You know, it had not occurred to me that there none existed and um wow yeah that would be great yeah if you're you're down to do more i think that'd be a good avenue to explore and this is something that it's just one of those things that's going to take a lot more depth for people to to get so i think it'd be well worse. for all of you listening um if you undertake a broad study of these things um you will um find uh, different sources describing things differently and my experience is that there's a lot of truth in all of them, but you've got to kind of put it together. And the key to really understanding it is catching sight of the underlying energies. So uh, in, in the literature on this, it's going to be described often in terms of certain behaviors. But the behaviors are only tendencies. Uh, if you can get a sense of the energies underneath possible behaviors, you're going to get a better sense of this stuff, and that will allow you to see how three descriptions that seem different from each other can all be true under different circumstances. So the goal here is to catch a sense of what's going on under the hood. The Enneagram is similar where any given author, you kind of have some compulsion to start to go into behaviors and so forth. But if you look at several different authors, you get a sense of the as you say, the under underlying sort of energetic signature of each type and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So if, if people do want to um, read more about this, there's my book, Journey of Your Soul, a channel explores the Michael teachings. And, uh, but there are probably 30 other good books out on the Michael teachings. Uh, the four books by Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, uh, including the first Michael book of them all, Messages from Michael, uh, all have a lot of good uh, deep content in them. And there's a book called um, <clears throat> The Michael Handbook by Jose Stevens and Simon Oreck Smith that um, just lists the traits in an orderly way with good descriptions and examples. And there's just really a lot of good information out there if you're into books. So. Uh, of course, there's a ton of websites also. There's mine, shepherdhoodwin.com. There's michaelteachings.com and several others. Um, so, And you will see some contradictions uh, in terms of what different channels think certain celebrities' uh, charts are. Um, that's just something that uh, we have to make peace with because it's the nature of the beast when you have a lot of different people channeling the same entity and information. Um, there's issues of accuracy and contradiction, but uh, you can work through those and uh, decide what you think anyway. Well, thanks, Shepard, for doing this. This has been yeah, really cool. You. Thank you, um, Shepard. Yeah, um, I'm sure we'll do something again in the future. 
But I think this has been a great um, dive into Michael teachings for a lot of people who have curiosity about the system. I've loved doing this, and, and I just enjoy the four of you and, and Joseph so much. You know, you really um, uh, don't take it too seriously. You're fun and smart and nuanced, and it's, uh, I've, I've found it very easy to talk to you, so I thank you all. Well, thanks. Right. thanks. Come hang anytime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bye. All right, Shepard. Bye. Take care. Talk to you soon. Take Thank care. you. All right, now you all. Okay. Bye. Good night.